Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. It's always possible uh, for us to underestimate uh, God's power to change lives. We, uh, we underestimate His power to change our own lives, and we often look at others and say, no, I don't think Jesus can change that person. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you've ever been in a place of judgment of yourself or judgment of others, uh, but really what we're doing in those situations is we're judging God's ability to, to transform. And it really is God who changes lives, not us. And so as we come to him this morning, I want us to think about that idea of how we, the church, and we uh, as believers very often put Jesus on trial, uh, suggesting that Jesus is just not quite up to snuff. Jesus is just not quite up to the ability to actually truly transform someone's life. That whatever you had in the past that you brought to Jesus when you came to him initially is just too big for God to be able to do anything with. And uh, we do this often in our own lives. We do it to others as well. We, we judge Jesus and his ability to change. One, one night on an evening service, uh, a lady uh, listened to the pastor preach this very compelling sermon invitation to come and be transformed by Jesus. And so she, uh, the invitation was for her to step out of her seat, to come down the aisle and come forward and, and make a public profession of faith. And that's what she did. No one knew, though, her past. She had a rough past. She had been involved in uh, alcohol abuse, uh, drugs, and, and prostitution. But the change in her life was evident. It was, it was complete. As time went on, she became a faithful member of the church. Uh, she even started teaching uh, children in Sunday school and other events. She eventually uh, caught the eye of the, the, the son of the pastor, uh, and they started a relationship, and eventually that relationship grew, and they made wedding plans. And uh, when the wedding plans were announced to the church, the church called a meeting, invited everyone to sit down, because many in the church believed that, that although she had, was a believer, that her past disqualified her from truly being the best candidate for, for the pastor's son to be married to. And so they had a very vicious meeting. Uh, and finally, the, the young, the young fiancé, the, the, hus- the husband-to-be, couldn't take it anymore. And he stood up and he said, you know, really what you're doing today is that you're putting the blood of Jesus on trial. Not, not her. You're, you're putting the blood of Jesus on trial. Does the blood of Jesus really wash away our sin or not? The church was broken, began to weep, repented, and apologized because truly they realized what they had been doing was 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 putting Christ himself on trial instead of this young lady. Too often, even as Christians, we bring up the past and use it as a weapon against our brothers and our sisters or even against ourselves. Uh, we get stuck in this, this ever-ending kind of relentless uh, remembering of who we used to be and remembering of who others used to be. Does Christ change or not? Forgiveness uh, is foundational part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and forgives. But not only forgiveness, Jesus uh, also comes in and transforms us. Uh, th- this is what's amazing about Jesus is that it's not just that he says, okay, I'm, you say you're sorry, I forgive you. He actually changes us and transforms us into new people. Uh, that's, that's why a person who used to be a prostitute can actually be an effective and wonderful wife. 
uh, at some point because Jesus can, tr- can change a person to that extent. Does Jesus Christ change us or not? Jesus not only forgives, he transforms. He reforms. He, he makes us new people. Uh, Paul referred to this as the old, the old is completely gone and the new has come because of the power of Jesus Christ. Now, we, we as individuals cannot forgive people. We, we can't tra- change people. We can forgive people. So God's expectation of us is not that we change others, but that we forgive others. That's our job. Christ does the changing. Just as Christ forgave us, we forgive others. And we trust Jesus to change them into the person they need to be. Jesus not only forgives, but he changes. The blood of Jesus forgives all and transforms all. Just like the old hymn says, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. End of case. Not the blood and just the blood of Jesus is enough. So this lady who had given her life to Christ had been totally transformed. So freed from the bondage of sin's power and guilt. Freedom from God's wrath. Freedom from satanic and demonic authority. Freedom from shame of her past. She then had to fight for the freedom from the tyranny of others' opinions, others' obligations they had placed on her life, and others' expectations. She had to fight for grace. She had to fight for what Christ had already done in her life. And often that's the case. Personally, most of us, this is more of an internal problem. In other words, we, we come to Christ and we say, please change me. We give our lives to him. But then we continue to remember and recall our past and disqualify our, our own self. And Galatians 5.1 is such a powerful passage. Paul, who had been freed from so much, says this. Galatians 5 verse 1. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. What he's saying here, simple, Christ has truly freed us. So Christ has the capacity to free us from uh, the bondage of sin, uh, the bondage of of self-incrimination, all of those things that we we are bound to. Christ can free us from that. When we give our lives to Christ, then the goal is to actually stay free. By remaining in Christ, remaining in his love, John 15 says, remain in my love. Remain in this consistent, ongoing grace of transformative power that God offers for us. Stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. In other words, don't get tied up again in in adding something to what Jesus has done. Jesus plus the rule keeping. Jesus plus the law. We have to fight for this. We have to fight for it for ourselves, and we have to fight for it for the church. Our brothers and sisters in Christ that we, that we go to church with, that we fellowship with on a regular basis in, in the city, is that we need to see them and approach them also, too, with the grace, realizing that for you and for them, only Christ is sufficient to transform lives. We need to actually defend grace. We need to fight for grace. Paul tells us that we're set free. We should not submit again to bondage and allow others to steal grace from us. But we also need to not steal grace from others. We need to fight for this grace. Just a little background of this passage of Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This is the New Living Translation. 
that says, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul is writing to a group of people who really are questioning his, his credibility as a leader. They're saying, is this guy really qualified to be an apostle? So as he begins the letter to the Galatians, he's saying, guys, listen, you know, I am an apostle of Christ because Jesus himself chose me. If you look in Galatians 1 verse 12, he makes this strong, strong case. Uh, there it is. Great. Is that uh, he says very specifically, very clearly, he says, I received my message from what? No human source. And no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. So this is this clear credibility given to him straight from Jesus himself. Uh, Paul's point here is that Christ alone is able to change a life. And he's writing and dealing with not only the issue of his credibility as an apostle, but he's also writing this letter to them to say, guys, you don't need to add to Jesus anything else. You see, what was happening was they were saying, listen, uh, yes, Jesus can change you, but, but you need to become a Jew first before you can truly be changed by Jesus Christ. In other words, become a Jew, get circumcised, and then let Jesus change you. This is what was being practiced. And Paul was writing against this, saying, listen, circumcision has absolutely no value. Now, for us and for all of us dealing with the idea of circumcision, it seems like a very inappropriate topic, right? Now, how, many, how many times have you had conversations with people about circumcision, especially now hearing it from up here, you know, from the preacher talking about circumcision? It's not something we talk about, in, you know, do we? Uh, at least I hope we don't have this conversation all the time. But, but Paul is addressing this because this is the issue at hand here, is that these new believers were saying, yes, Jesus changes, sure he does, but why don't you become a Jew first? Get circumcised and then, and then give your life to Jesus Christ. They were adding to Christ. This is what was happening. This really bothered Paul. Uh, and so he's writing to them to say, fighting really for two issues in this letter. He's saying, first of all, listen, I, I can speak about this because I'm truly an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, not any other person, but Jesus himself actually commissioned me, called me into this job. So I'm speaking on behalf of the credibility I have in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is doing in this letter. And then he's saying, and on that point, since I do have credibility, do not require that people get circumcised before they can give their life to Christ. That really is kind of a, a quick summary of this letter to the Galatians. I received my message from no human source. So he's saying to them, do not add to. Galatians 5 and following, that, that letter, that section of, of verses 1 through 13 is really him getting irritated. All right, he's saying, you need, to, you need to knock this off, essentially. And he says, if you're going to preach circumcision, then you're going to be bound by all the law. You're going to have to do much more than just circumcision if you're teaching circumcision. And he says, listen, I, I wish the people who were teaching this would actually just go the whole way and castrate themselves. Don't just stop at circumcision. Get castrated. That's what he says here. I'm, I can read it to you. Galatians 5, verse 12. I just wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. And the word there, the Greek word is there to castrate. Another English word we have is the word emasculate. It's kind of rough, isn't it? Paul, 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 Paul. That's what he's saying. Do not add to Jesus. He's saying this is so frustrating because you're adding to what Christ, you're doubting the capacity of Jesus Christ to change lives by adding this requirement. 
He warns them in Galatians 5, 1 through 3. He says, listen, a little yeast will impact the entire lump of flour. So this, this is a slippery slope he's saying here. If you start this, then you're just going to keep adding requirements to Jesus Christ. Is Jesus enough or not? He says we've got to fight for grace. We've got to fight to keep it Jesus only. In, in Hebrews 12, 15, the writer of Hebrews says this, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This unmerited favor of Jesus Christ, this power and love of Jesus Christ that changes lives. See to it that no one misses it. Christ alone. Christ alone. Jesus truly frees us up. Can we park there just for a moment? Ponder this with me this morning. Jesus truly gives us freedom. Right? Do you believe it this morning? Do we believe it? Do we hang on to that for dear life that Jesus really can change any one of us? A skeptic told an evangelist, he said, you Christians seem to have just enough religion to keep you from sinning, but not enough to make them truly happy. You have just enough, but not truly enough to get you free. So we kind of let church and other things kind of, we kind of come in and out of church and come in and out of religious circles and we just kind of stay there, not fully, truly, truly transformed by Christ, but just kind of looking at it every now and again. For many of us, we need to shift from this idea of being a slave to a child of God. Oftentimes, even our church attendance is to get God to love us. That Let's go to church so that maybe God will think good of me today. Or let me do this for somebody just to get God's love and God's peace in my life. Instead of resting in the fact that you are a child of God. Resting there, parking there, knowing that Jesus Christ has, has, changed, has changed you and is continuing to change you. Possibly our problem in this and why we can't just truly embrace the idea that we're truly free is that possibly we still see ourselves as a, a good works type of a person. I, I've, I've got to do good things to get people to love me. I've got to do good things for God to love me. And so we, we, approach, him as a, we approach God as, as though we are slaves instead of approaching him as, as true children of his. David, David Siemens in his book, Healing Grace, uh, details this idea, contrasts this idea of what it's like the perspective of a son compared to this perspective of a slave. This is what he says. So a servant, a servant is accepted and appreciated on the basis of what he does. The child is, is accepted and appreciated based on who he is. My own child could do just about anything, but I would still love them. My own child could do just about anything, and there's pretty much nothing that they could do that I would say, I don't want to ever see you again. Get out of my life. Rejection is never on the table for my children. Ever. Discipline is on the table. My children can tell you very well that discipline was on the table when it came to me, but not rejection. The servant is accepted and appreciated on the basis of what he does. The child is on the basis of who he is. The servant starts the day anxious and worried, wondering if his work will really please his master. The child rests in the secure love of his family. 
The servant is accepted based on how good he works, the skill of his work. The son or daughter is because of that relationship. The servant is accepted because of his productivity, his performance. The child belongs because of his position as a person. And where do we park? Do we park more on our productivity and performance when it comes to our relationship with God? Or do we approach him from the perspective of, of position? I'm a child of God, full stop. And the good things that I do, I do because of Christ in me working through me. At the end of the day, the servant has peace of mind only if he is sure he has proven his worth by his work. The next morning, his anxiety begins again. The child can be secure all day and know that tomorrow won't change his status. When a servant fails, the whole position is at stake. He might lose his job. When a child fails, he'll be grieved because he has hurt his parents, hopefully, and he will be corrected and disciplined. But he is not afraid of being thrown out. His, ba his basic confidence is in belonging and being loved, and his performance does not change the stability of his position. We need to pray this. We need to say, God, I am your child. We need to practice this on a daily basis. God, I am your child, and I'm going to live and feel like one. I had a professor in seminary who was teaching us about, about the worship and devotion, how to pray. And uh, I asked him, I said, Should, shouldn't we, when we approach God, shouldn't we start our prayer with confession? Shouldn't we just say, God, I'm sorry, and then go into praise? The seminary professor looked at me and says, you know, you, you need to approach God as a child of God. Not as, as someone always consumed with how you, how you drop the ball with God. So praise him, greet him as though you are loved and accepted. Begin your time with God uh, through, through praise and thanks and hi. <laughs> and, then, and then God will begin to reveal to you any areas that you fall short later. Then you, then you spend time later in confession. Confession is part of our world, yes, of course, in prayer. But start with, I'm a child of God. Lord, I know you love me. I love you. Start there. And I think we need to practice this in our life. We tend to bring God, our first word to God is, I'm sorry. How many of you pray like that? I think many of us do. Lord, let me give you my list of sin and then I'll, say, I'll greet you. <laughs> How bizarre would that be, right? That every person you spoke to, you gave your list of sins before you said hello to them. Listen, before I say hello to you, I just want you to know. <laughs> That's how we approach God. We approach God from the perspective of always being in this, this uh, point of, of, of critical rejection. We feel like we're about to be rejected by this almighty God. God, I'm your child, and I'm going to live and feel like one. Galatians 4 says this. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject by the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because you Gentiles have become his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. And now you can call God your dear what? Your dear father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, everything he has belongs to you. So we're, we're, we are in this new position when we give our lives to Christ. We've truly been freed by Jesus, and we're in this new position of being his child. Childs have, children have privileges, right? Uh, Peter actually called us a royal priesthood. 
We're, we're special in the eyes of God. We're loved. And, and that's beyond our imagination to think that God could love us. Yes. And often we think, how could God love that person? But the fact is, is that because of Christ's transforming power, he forgives and changes us and loves us in spite of ourselves. He does for us what is truly unfair, if you think about it, right? We, we deserve, actually, punishment. But, but Jesus looks past that and forgives us. And because of what the payment that was paid on the cross, Jesus Christ has paid for our sins, and therefore he forgives us, and then he changes us. So Christ has truly set us free. Amen? Now make sure that you stay free. And don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Stand firm. Stand firm. We must not tolerate the gospel of works in ourselves, but also in the church we belong to. The performance of the gospel is a stumbling block to all believers, and it's a slippery slope when we begin to say, Jesus plus something. It's a very slippery slope. It's a dangerous place to be. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 3. As God's partners, Paul says, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. I love that verse. Don't accept this incredible transforming gift, which is God's forgiveness, God's love, God's power to transform, and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us and no one will find fault with our ministry. So Paul, Paul had in his mindset, and it's a mindset we need to have as well, that we need to remove everything that would, that would, would trip people on their journey to Jesus Christ. We, we need to remove everything from us that would, would trip people up as they were trying to get to Jesus, the only one who can really transform them. I find that sometimes when I share Christ with people, I have to fight in, internally this notion that somehow I feel like that somehow I can be the, the secret ingredient for this individual that I'm sharing Christ with. When I realize, because very often when I'm listening to someone, when I'm sharing Christ with someone, I'm also listening to their story. And their story is a story of pain and hurt and, and egregious sin in their past. Uh, their lives are actually overwhelming to think about. But... But the fact of the matter is, is that as overwhelming as it seems to them, by the way, and also to me as I'm hearing the story, Christ can change that life. And so what they need from me in that moment is not me. They just need me to, to be the vessel, to point them to the one who can change them. That's what they need. They need me to just lift up Christ to them so they can see him clearly so they can say, yes, I place my faith in you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you. We need to lift up Jesus more highly than we lift up ourselves. We need to lift up Jesus even more highly than the gospel presentation that we're using. We need to lift Christ up to people because he's the only one who can change. And we need to remove whatever is keeping people from tripping and missing Jesus. What is it in our life that needs to be taken out? so that people can truly see past us and see Christ and have their lives transformed. We need to fight for grace. We need to fight for grace for ourselves personally, and we need to fight for grace for the church. We 
have sometimes deified keeping the law. We have actually lifted the, the rule keeping as higher than actually the following of Jesus Christ. Why do we do this? Why do we tolerate this Jesus plus something? Why do we do this? I think a lot of us just don't really think of ourselves too highly. And we don't think of ourselves too worthy. We don't think of ourselves worthy enough to receive this undeserved gift from Jesus Christ. We place our sins before God and say, how can you forgive this? And we do it not only the, the initial time when we are invited to follow Christ, but we do it after we follow Christ too. We just go, ah, but, but how about this sin? God, surely you can't forgive this one. Surely you can't change this. And we just keep placing this before. Our, our view of ourselves is not accurate. And so we, we, we go before God and we just don't think we're worthy to receive this kind of love over and over and over again. I think some of us actually would feel better if we could pay for our sins. Where if there's some if there's something I could do, I could pay penance in some way to actually, you know, earn back God's favor. Just tell me, God, just tell me, what do I need to do <laughs> that would be good enough for you to actually uh, 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 finally receive me and accept me? We cherish sin. Sometimes we just love sin, <laughs> right? We just love to do bad things. And we would rather belong to a church that every week we could go and still do whatever sin we wanted to do, but then go every week and then get a spiritual whipping, a hiding, a spiritual hiding every Sunday. There are a lot of churches out there like that where every Sunday you can just really, really get it from the pulpit or get it from people at the church. They'll tell you exactly where you stepped out of line, and we like that sometimes. That's great. I deserve that. I want to go to a church where every single Sunday I get a spiritual hiding. And then we, we miss out, right, on the grace of God. We miss out on his love. I think we also misunderstand God's love as passivism as well sometimes. I think we see that, that, God just, uh, that God's love is just totally, you know, uh, it's a pacifist kind of a love. That there's, no, that there's no actually fighting for something. That we, we misinterpret how he approaches people. To actually demand that we actually go before the Father and receive his, his, his power and his love is, we feel like, is, uh, is an intolerance. There's a demanding spirit that doesn't seem to be fitting of the, of, the, of the nature of Christ. And so we don't address where grace has been challenged or grace has been stolen out of churches. We don't address it in ourselves. We don't address it in others. We don't confront boldly this issue that, that grace needs to be fought for. And so we don't, we don't fight for it. We passively deal with this. Uh, God will deal with them eventually. But God's love is not passive. God's love went to the cross and died on the cross. And God actively fights. There's a spiritual battle going on, fighting for people's freedom. We need to, we need to enroll in that battle. We are called to a spiritual battle ourselves. And we can't passively sit back and let grace be stolen from ourselves, stolen from others, stolen from the church. Christ only. Paul is saying boldly, he's saying, if you must not add anything to grace. Jesus alone. Charles Swindoll in his book, it's an incredible book on grace. He talks about this. He believes that there's three areas in which the church actually drops the ball, where we as believers in churches drop the ball and we allow grace to be pushed out. 
doctrinal heresies, any doctrine that asks, that takes away from Christ's work on the cross. Is we can actually be participating in, a, in doctrines that, that are Jesus plus something. And that we can adopt a doctrine or we can have a religious practice in churches. This is doctrinal heresy. It's, 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 it's heretical behavior of the church to add anything to Jesus for salvation, for transformation. Doctrinal heresy. Where uh, something pretends to be the good news but is not the good news at all. And we allow this in churches. We... We allow this practice, which are not biblical, which are not truly of God, we allow them to be practiced. And we adopt them as our, as our policies. There are a few things. Let me give you a few examples of this. Uh, this, is my personal, uh, this is my personal opinion on this particular topic, so hear me well. Uh, the issue of baptism. Uh, I, uh, scripturally, we're taught that baptism is to be carried out uh, by uh, disciples. Disciples baptizing disciples. In other words, followers of Jesus Christ who've also been baptized, who've been changed, carry out this practice of baptizing others who've also given their life to Christ. Uh, now, we've, we've made this particular uh, practice of baptism uh, in some, in some uh, religious practices, we've placed that baptismal responsibility to only uh, uh, official elders or pastors of churches who, who are, quote, ordained. And we, we determine how they are ordained or how they are anointed by God. So this, this process of only specific people are allowed in the church to baptize. I, I believe that doctrine is unbiblical. The Bible teaches very clearly that, that disciples actually make disciples. And disciples are commanded to baptize other believers. Not only those who have been gone through some rigid test, uh, some rigid doctrinal uh, test and checkup uh, procedure where they become a leader, an official known leader of, an or of a church before they can ever baptize. That's just one example. There are many, many in our churches today that we've added to. These practices that are added to the commands of Christ. On the issue of baptism, Jesus Christ very clearly commanded, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them. It's a command of Christ. This command of authority to baptize comes directly from Jesus himself to all followers of Christ. It shouldn't be complicated. We shouldn't also delay baptism. This is another uh, issue in the church as well, is that we say, no, prove to me that you're truly transformed and then obey Jesus in baptism. And so baptism is delayed, exhaustive delays before, after a person gives his life to Christ, enormous delays before they can be baptized waiting to see is there true transformation in this person or not not ignoring the fact that scripture teaches us very clearly that baptism is a command of Jesus Christ so by delaying baptism you are encouraging people in your church to delay their obedience to Jesus Christ and therefore not being the kind of mature child that you're looking for you're looking for evidence of maturity in this believer before you baptize them First step of obedience is baptism. First sign of maturity is that they obey Christ in baptism. That's the scriptural mandate. Doctrinal heresy. Ecclesiastical harassment. Uh, Charles Wendell says this harassment, this kind of bullying that we do in churches. 
where we try to control other people's behaviors. I'll let that one sit as it is. And then personal hypocrisy. I think all of us at some point have actually said that we believe in one thing but then lived in a different way. Our personal hypocrisy actually paints the church in a light that is, that is contrary to the heart of God. We say we've been changed by Christ, but we continue to live in ways that do not show the character and quality of who Jesus is. So what do we do? We need to break the cycle of ungrace in ourselves. We need to break the cycle of ungrace in others. We need to actually fight for grace in the church. We need to defend grace. All of us are products of this cycle of ungrace to, to one extent or another. In some ways, we have been treated in ways that we don't deserve. We've been hurt. We've been damaged by either family or friends in some way. All of us. And our temptation is to carry that judgmental spirit and that hurt that we've received from others to the persons that we love and the persons that we maybe are in charge of. And you see this in families especially where a father, uh, a father mistreats his children, is hard on his children. Children learn that the only way to operate and function as a parent is to be hard on their own kids. A father who's, who threatens rejection, that child very often will have children and threaten rejection of their children. And this cycle of ungrace continues for generations. If you do that, you will not be walking into my house again. That child does the same thing to their child, which does the same thing to their child. And many of us live with this cycle of ungrace in our lives. It's, it's kind of the rare family that's able to break the cycle of ungrace. Maybe you've been raised in a harsh environment where you receive maybe mental and physical abuse. But your job as a believer then when you have your own children is, is, is not to continue that way of operating with your own family. In Christ, we truly can be transformed in such a way that we now give our family and our friends the gift of grace. In the same way we have been forgiven, we forgive. Jesus invites us to break the cycle of ungrace. There's not a person here this morning that, that is unable to tell a story of how possibly in their own families they were treated with disgrace. That possibly the way they were raised by parents or impacted by an uncle or by an aunt. But in some way, they did not see God's grace in their family. And they've been hurt. You've been hurt in some way by this disgrace. Maybe a point in your life you came to, to, to Jesus and said, I, here, here are my sins, God, please forgive me. And you've been gloriously forgiven. And now God is asking you to forgive the very people who hurt you in the first place. God is inviting you to be as unfair with your parents as Jesus was with you. Or with your uncle or whoever it is. But to forgive them. Not because they deserve it. That's the unfair part. Grace is unfair. If you gave them what they deserved, it would not be grace, right? And a lot of us are sitting with this unforgiveness in our life. We've been forgiven by Jesus Christ, but we refuse to offer that same forgiveness to those who've hurt us. And then we stay in this cycle of ungrace. We're unable to live truly free because we're, we're captured 
by not forgiving others. Jesus Christ has done something that we do not deserve. Christ is unfair. Christ has broken through and changed us. Now we offer this same grace to others. Why? Because Jesus Christ can not only forgive the people who've hurt us, he can also do what? He can change them. So you're not, you're not just saying, I, I forgive you. I accept that everything you've done is, is good. No, no, no. You're not saying, you're not agreeing with everything you've done. You're saying, no, I forgive you because what you've done is horrible. But I forgive you just as Jesus Christ has forgiven me. And just as I don't deserve the forgiveness of God and you don't deserve it, I still forgive you anyway. And then there's freedom that can happen in your life. So possibly for you, fighting for grace may mean that you're fighting for the grace in people that have offended you. That you're fighting for them to be forgiven like you were forgiven. And so that both of you can be free. We need to be defenders of grace. Truly, Christ has truly set us free, right? Galatians 5.1. Christ has truly set us free. Continue to be free. And don't limit yourself. Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free. And don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for grace. Lord, we thank you, God, that you have, Lord, you have forgiven us. You have transformed us. Lord Jesus, we ask for forgiveness in ways that, God, we have uh, added to your work on the cross. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are patient with even that in us. So, Lord, help us to be truly warriors for grace. Not to be pacifists, but to be truly warriors for your power and your love that's available to all those who would receive you. Lord, we praise you today and thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. This is Rico Veca, and I am also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today. And it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.